It is really good to see you. Wasn't sure who would be away on summer holidays. I think some of our guys are, but... Um, so yeah, this morning uh, we want to do something a little bit different. Um, we have been looking pretty thoroughly at, through the book of Acts. So uh, your knowledge of Acts at this point must be pretty super. Um, but what I want to do this morning is to focus more on one particular character, to look at his life um, and to see what God wants to say and wants to communicate to us through his story and through his experience, which so beautifully shows just what we were singing. You know, we serve a great, great God who can do way beyond anything that we can even put into words. And so I think that um, that song is a beautiful lead into this morning because uh, it's just perfect for this, this character. I'm not going to tell you who he is quite yet, so it's going to be a little bit, do you, like, do you remember Donkeys years ago, the, uh, the big red book show, that this is your life show, and before they actually said who it was, then they gave all these clues and you were trying to figure it out before they actually walked on stage. So this is a little bit like this. It's not going to take you very long to know who this is anyway, because uh, he's very well known, let's just say. So this particular man, I'll tell you that, um, experienced a pretty stunning encounter with Jesus, which literally caused him to do an absolute 100 degree turn. Um, and so here is a perfect example of somebody who absolutely became a new creation. You know that verse in the Bible, it's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, and it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. And in fact, this man actually became one of the most predominant and influential characters of the New Testament. He went on to found several churches in Asia Minor and Europe in the mid-30s to the mid-50s AD. He was an apostle, although not one of the 12 apostles, and he could maybe be described as being a writer, a missionary, but pretty much an exceptional follower of Christ. Know who it is yet? Paul, absolutely. So commonly known as St. Paul, he is generally considered one of the most important figures of the apostolic age. So let me tell you a few facts about this man. What I really want to do is to take what you already know, and I want to put meat on that. So I want to tell you some facts just to, to really build a firm foundation to help us in our understanding of who he was. So this man, Paul, he was born in the prominent city of Tarsus. Now, I have all of the, uh, the Bible references, so come and see me if you want those later on. His parents were Hebrews and evidently adhered to the Pharisaic branch of Judaism. He was a Roman citizen from birth, and he probably learned the trade of being a tent maker from his father. Now, at Jerusalem, he received instruction, and he actually would have been a very learned man in theology. And he was taught by the great Pharisee, I have no idea how to say this, Gamaliel, is that how you would say him? Would that do? Okay, nobody really knows, but phonetically that's pretty close probably. So he was taught by him, um, and there was, that really suggests that he was from a pretty prominent family. Language-wise, he was versed in at least Greek and Hebrew, and 
You might find this interesting. During his missionary travels, he wasn't married, but he had family in Jerusalem. He had a sister and he had a nephew who resided there. And actually 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament have been attributed to Paul. So there you go. Lots of facts to get you started. So where does he first appear in the Bible? Maybe ask yourself that question and see if you know the answer. Well, the Bible first introduces Saul, who later became Paul, as the young man at whose feet the false witnesses who stoned Christ's disciple Stephen laid their outer garments. That's the very first mention of Saul. And we've looked a little bit at uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the story of the stoning of Stephen as we've been looking at Acts. And so basically at this stage, Stephen has just delivered a prophetic speech. This is from Acts 7. And he is seized by a really angry crowd. He is taken outside the city and he is stoned. And Acts 8 verse 1 says that Saul approved of this execution. Now we're not quite sure whether he was actually a legal representative of the Sanhedrin. It's a bit, that's a bit unclear. But he is described as ravaging the church which is a term really used to depict violent actions in war. And in places like Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, Paul kind of hints of his relationship with the high priests and others. And in Philippians 3, verse 5, he speaks about being from the tribe of Benjamin and a Pharisee. So you can pretty much make the case that Paul's early persecution of Christians, it was done at least with the knowledge, but possibly also with the consent of the Jewish authorities. So clearly at this point, um, as we have said, Paul approved of the murder of Stephen. And why did he approve of this? Well, he had a misdirected zeal for tradition. And so he decided to embark on a campaign of vicious persecution against Christ followers. So when they were to be executed, he voted um, saying that that should happen. And at the time of their trial in the synagogues, he set out to force them to recant. And that term basically means to announce in public that their beliefs or their statements were actually wrong and they no longer believed in them. So he extended his persecution to other cities other than Jerusalem, and he even secured written authorization from the high priest to search out disciples of Christ as far north as Damascus in Syria to bind them and then probably to bring them for trial um, by the Sanhedrin. So the bottom line is this. This was not a man you wanted to mess with in any shape or form. He was ruthless. And he was a very driven character. Now, non-biblical historical sources reveal that Jerusalem leadership had determined that Christianity shouldn't gain a foothold in Damascus. And really, this is because Damascus was a major hub. And the fear was that Christianity, if it reached there, could spread so, so quickly throughout the known world. So that's why Paul was heading there. He was heading there to make sure that that did not happen. 
So this is the context at the start of Act 9. Um, so my plan is that I'm going to go through the story with you. I want to bring out a few bits and pieces that I kind of felt God highlight as I was doing it. And as Chris said, we're going to be doing a wee bit of tag teaming this morning. It's been a bit of a crazy week in our house with a tummy bug and with the lovely American guys who were over. It's kept us busy. So I think this format is going to work for us this morning. So let's just take one wee second. And I just really want to invite the Holy Spirit to move and to speak through this to us today. Yes, Father, thank you that you are a great, great God. And thank you that this fact is so evident in the life of Saul, who became a whole new creation. And Jesus, we just pray that you would take what you've put in my heart this morning, Father, that you would use this story to reveal more of who you are, to reveal how you can move so powerfully and so dynamically and so beautifully in the lives of every one of us. So Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. So here, we're about to read it, but here we see Saul carrying out his search for the disciples of Christ um, on the road. He's on the route to Damascus. He's armed with this letter from the high priest um, of the temple in Jerusalem, which then gave him the authority to arrest any who belonged to the way. In other words, any who were followers of Christ. And, you know, this man was so intent on opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth that it says in Acts 26, verse 9, um, in raging fury, he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He truly hated Christ and all who were associated with him. So let's open up our Bibles. Um, there are some at the ends of the rows if you haven't got your Bible with you, but I think we've got it up on the screen as well. There's something about reading it from the Bible, I think, too, isn't there? So we're going to start off um, with the chapter 1. And I initially want to read up to verse 9 so we can focus on the first part of the story. Um, and just something for you to realize and know, um, you might want to do a bit of study of this later in the week yourself. There are actually two retellings that come after Acts 9, um, retellings by Paul himself in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. And actually there's quite a lot of detail in the Acts 26 one, um, but we're looking and focusing on Acts 9 this morning. So it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So this is some story, isn't it? I think we're so used to reading it, we don't necessarily stop and just think how dramatic this is. Just walking along a road, this blinding light shines down and he hears the voice of Jesus. It's a really incredible, dramatic and pretty startling story. And I think there are a few things that strike me about this that I would love to share with you. So it'll come as no surprise from what I've told you that the very name of Saul struck absolute fear and terror into the hearts and the minds of all of the Christians who heard that name. Um, And imagine how they would have felt if they heard that he was on his way to Damascus to them. But imagine now the terror that must have filled Saul's heart when Jesus identified himself as the very one that he had been persecuting. He must have felt so completely crushed and sickened at the realization of the suffering and the death that ultimately he was responsible for. And let's have a think about this light. This light that suddenly shone down. It wasn't an ordinary light. In fact, it was very far from it. It was a light that came straight from heaven. And if you look at Acts 26, it actually describes this light as brighter than the sun. Now, I'm not quite sure how you can get a light that's brighter than the sun, but that's what it says. And this light had a supernatural power that actually knocked Saul to the ground. And there are some schools of thought that Saul actually would have been on horseback at this time. Um, The road to Damascus, the trip, would have been about 136 miles. So you can add that element of drama in when you're imagining all this. He possibly was on his horse and actually got knocked um, off his horse. And I suspect that this light, it didn't only play a part in revealing the lordship of Jesus, because interestingly, um, Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? So he seems to recognize that there is some sort of deity um, who is part of all of this. But I also think that this light probably helped Saul recognize and see and understand his sin and what he had been doing. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I wasn't quite sure how to read that because I do wonder about the tone in which that was said. Do you think it was said with anger? Do you think it was maybe said with frustration? Or do you think it was said with grace and with love that actually seems to characterize Jesus' exchanges. In one moment of fear and enlightenment and regret, Saul got it. He understood beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Messiah and that he, Saul, had helped murder and imprison innocent people. 
And despite his previous beliefs as a Pharisee, he now knew the truth about God and was obligated to obey him. And I love this because Paul's conversion, it proves that nobody, nobody is beyond God's reach. Nobody is beyond God's touch. He can break into the very, very hardest of hearts. And interestingly, actually, I just happened to see a testimony this week. And uh, it was a guy who you would have looked at in his past life and you would have said, dangerous, dangerous character. You know, he was so full of violence and rage and so fueled by anger and the desire to hurt. Um, So he had killed, he was put into prison and he then attacked the prison guards. So he moved prisons and they just did not know what to do with this guy. And uh, Alpha came to the prison and he went into the room and uh, he's like, oh, that's Jesus stuff. But that didn't put Jesus off. Jesus met with this man in not a massively dramatic way, but in a very real way and just brought him to the point of realizing and seeing exactly who Jesus was and although he had done what he had done, that there was still hope and that there was still love. And so that guy actually is still going around prisons, but he's not a prisoner. He's going around the prisoners sharing Jesus, which uh, just it came to my mind whenever I was thinking about uh, our story of Saul here that we're looking at. And something else that I, I find really interesting that I want to share with you is this. This was an encounter for Paul alone. The fullness of it is a spiritual experience to which only Paul has access, or Saul. You know what I mean when I say Saul, Paul, same person. And he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone on the road to Damascus. There were others with him. And it says that those with him heard the sound of someone speaking. And in fact, Acts 22 says um, that they saw the light, but they didn't understand the words spoken by the voice. But Paul alone understood the words and he became blinded. And that was the moment where nothing was ever the same for him again. He turned his back on his old ways and he began the process of morphing into the new creation that we referred to earlier. So for three days, he was blind. And you might wonder, but why? Why did blinding him have to be part of this experience? Well, we read that when Saul got up from the ground... This is Acts 9, verse 8. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And perhaps this is actually an example of the link between spiritual and physical sight. Because at this point, Saul is in a liminal state. And what I mean by that is he's kind of in a bit of an intermediate, um, in-between condition because he's still not entirely sure about what, exactly has happened um, and about this encounter with Jesus 
And so he then has to go through a bit of a process um, of getting spiritual sight and understanding and his physical sight isn't restored until that point. So the bit that we have read is where Saul receives his commission. But then he actually has a part to play. It says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he actually has to physically obey Jesus. He needs to physically step in to what this looks like in this context before receiving the fullness and the full measure of everything that God has for him. And sometimes that's the way it is for us too. Sometimes God speaks, but we actually need to then take responsibility in terms of stepping into that. We have to play our part. And I guess it's a little bit like Chris and I 13 years ago. So we felt God say, right, guys, I'm calling you to church plant in Portadown. Would that have happened if we stayed in our house in Belfast? Not, not really. We needed to physically make the step and we needed to move down to be part of the community um, to see the fullness of what God had for us. And little did we know where it would lead. So let's have a little read of the next part of the story. So we're going to start now at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And I think one of the first things that struck me as I read that was the beautiful relationship of trust that Ananias has in his Lord here. Because Ananias, he has heard all about Saul. He's one of those people I referred to earlier. He would have been quaking at the name of Saul. And, you know, he knew exactly that he had a certain authority behind him and what he was capable of. And I'm pretty sure that going anywhere near this man was the very last thing that Ananias wanted to do. But God speaks to him in a vision and Ananias 
obeys him. He obeys the call to go to Saul, to place his hands on him to restore his sight. So the bottom line is this. He was actually prepared to put his life on the line when it came down to it to obey what God asked of him. And another thing that stood out for me is the fact that it says in here that Saul is praying. So he's had this encounter and I talked about the kind of spiritual transformation that needed to happen. And it's evidenced here where it describes how Saul is praying. And the completion and the symbolism of this transformation is marked by something like scales falling from his eyes and his sight being restored. And once fully exposed to the truth, there is no going back for him. And note also here that Ananias prays for Paul to be filled with the Holy Spirit alongside the restoration of his sight because the spiritual transformation understanding has happened. But he won't be ready to fully step into his calling and everything that God has for him unless or until he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And straight after, it says he's baptized. And after a good feed, as we like to say in Northern Ireland, it says the poor man hadn't actually eaten or had a drink for three days, apparently. He's ready to go for it. And I was kind of thinking about that as well. So he didn't eat and he didn't have anything to drink for three days. And this is just me speculating, by the way, I don't know. But um, it made me think about the times whenever we fast so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus without distraction. And I wonder, was that the case? Because he was so overwhelmed with the revelation of what he had experienced, so immersed in the presence of Jesus and while this spiritual transformation was happening, that he didn't even have time or feel the human need to eat or drink. I don't know. Just a thought. Paul is described as God's chosen instrument to proclaim his name for the Gentiles. And this is such a brilliant reminder for us because God has plans and purposes for every one of our lives. And I'm sure that lots of you know um, the verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 12 and 13, where it talks about, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that is the case for every single one of us. We were designed by our heavenly father to fulfill and to live out a heavenly plan to bring his kingdom. And I think that we can really be so, so encouraged by that this morning. So Paul is described as God's chosen instrument. So let's go back to the fact that his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. So actually Paul's conversion played a really significant part in showing that Jesus wanted this good news gospel message to be for everybody, 
not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. So this was completely quashing any argument that the gospel was only for the Jews. And interestingly, this actually comes before the chapter um, where Peter receives the vision of the sheep being lowered down and the animals. And he talks about, I never eat anything unclean. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then he visits Cornelius. So that is kind of the part in the Bible that we equate, I think, more with the uh, the kind of focus on the gospel being all-inclusive for everybody. But it was actually Paul who very much got that, that message and that drive to make that clear first. So Paul's ministry begins at this point, and really he goes from strength to strength. So remember, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches in the synagogues and actually God really uses his past reputation to completely baffle those who are aware of it because they're looking at this man thinking that could not be the same person. That could not be this Saul who ruthlessly persecuted. It couldn't be the same person. And this just served to highlight the supernatural change and transformation that had taken place in his life because they weren't just watching him or they weren't just listening to him saying the right things. They were watching him operate and do what God had called him to do in ministry. And when I say that he went from strength to strength, I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying that it was an easy ride for him at all because actually... His life became under threat a number of times. Um, the first time it was thanks to a conspiracy by the Jews, uh, but he was kept safe. And I'm very sure it took time for him to build trust as well, especially among the disciples. And in fact, verse 26 um, says this is absolutely the case when he arrived back in Jerusalem. But as I said, they, they witnessed what he was doing. They witnessed that he was a changed man. And I just want to highlight um, Barnabas at this point. Barnabas at this stage played a key role in standing up for Paul and uh, helping the disciples to see that God had done something stunning and beautiful and very profound with his life and that they needed to give him a chance. And I think for us, it is really important that we too give people a chance and make up our own minds about them, regardless of what we may have heard about them from other people. So I think it's probably fair to say that few Bible stories are as thrilling as Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. That's why people talk about a Damascus road experience when they're talking about uh, you know, conversions that have been completely awesome. They look back to that particular story. So through the power of Christ, a man who had been a hate-filled villain became a love-filled hero. And he submitted himself 100% to Jesus. And he played a really significant part in spreading the gospel through the known world. And in the midst, he faced hardship and he faced persecution. He was imprisoned and he was even shipwrecked. There were plenty of adventures going on in there. But he never stopped laboring faithfully in his ministry. 
So you could say or describe Paul as very brave, untiring, and devoted to the cause of Christ. And actually, he, he lost his life for that cause as well. So from start to finish, I would say that the conversion and the, the story, subsequent story of the path that his life took uh, was some testimony. Okay, Chris, you're going to come up, aren't you? Can I, can I have that? Okay, so just, just a few minutes for us to think. Um, as Debbie says, this is a fantastic story. Uh, and one of the things that really strikes me about that is that um, Saul was passionate, convicted. He would do anything that needed to be done. He would go anywhere that um, he felt he needed to go before his conversion. And so God took everything that Paul was before his conversion, his passion, his zeal, his personality, his convictions, his energy, and redeemed all of that for his purposes. So even though his conversion um, was a dramatic change in some ways, in other ways, God was taking everything that he had already placed in Paul from before he was born and redeeming it. Uh, and I think for us this morning, what I want to encourage you to think about is, you know, what is it that God has put in you, your zeal, your passion, your enthusiasm, your skill, your ability? Um, and, and when we become Christians or when we walk the Christian life, we need to realize that everything that we are and all of our experiences, everything, God takes all of that and he brings about his purposes through that. Um, and um, so I have a friend, uh, unfortunately, he, he passed away a few years ago. Um, he was friendly with us when uh, we were teenagers, but his name was Rab, and he was from Inner East Belfast, and he was an absolute nightmare. And he eventually got expelled from school, and he was involved in, in taking drugs, and he was in the paramilitaries and stuff, and uh he got to the point in his life at 18 or 19 where he decided that he'd had enough and he went to a park in Belfast to kill himself. And he had an experience where a light shone on him and he had a, a dramatic conversion. And he was still that same person. He still had that same drive and energy and enthusiasm. He still had the same accent. Um, uh, which is, I'll not do an impression for you, maybe later, but um, <clears throat> God took everything that he was, his enthusiasm, his excitement, the things, the energy that got him into trouble, that got him involved in drugs, that got him in, expelled from school, and all that was then redeemed and used for God's purposes. So he was enthusiastic about Jesus. He was excited about Jesus. He wanted to go back into his community and instead of wrecking it and causing havoc, he wanted to go back into that community and tell people about Jesus. He went back to his school where he had been expelled from because um, he got a job with um, uh, the YMCA and he went back into that school as a youth worker to tell other kids about Jesus. And he still had the same drive, the same passion, the same enthusiasm. And so one of my questions for you today, this morning is, what is it that God has placed in you? Who has God made you to be? And in what ways does he want to work through the natural things that you are and that you have? But also, 
if you look at your past and maybe you've made mistakes and, and messed up and done things you wish you hadn't, but God can redeem everything. God can use your experiences. Sometimes the things that we're um, <clears throat> most ashamed of and embarrassed about um, are the experiences that God will use to allow us to minister to other people here in similar situations. Because, you know, we could have understood if Paul, having been converted, had gone and hidden away because he persecuted people. There was blood on his hands. He was basically a murderer. And, and so, like all these kind of people who were Christians knew this is the guy that's killed our friends. Um, and he could have just like walked away and hidden in shame and embarrassment for the rest of his life and just kept his mouth shut because of everything that he had done. But the encounter with Jesus, when he sees Jesus, when he knows who God is and the revelation of that, he goes from darkness to light, from death to life. And that three days where he was blind, you know, would have, would have spoken to him when he realized, you know, Jesus was in the grave and he was raised to life, that Paul literally has his death to life experience. And having seen the true light of God's goodness and having been brought from darkness to light, he can't help but go and tell people about that. And he doesn't, in, in a way, he doesn't care about his past, though he does talk about it in lots of ways. He doesn't let it define him. He doesn't let his past define him. And he doesn't let his past stop or restrict him. And in fact, his past becomes part of his story. And he uses that story to tell other people of God's goodness. And so, you know, we've all been there. We've all messed up. We've all done things that, that um, we wish we hadn't. And either we can live in guilt and shame and embarrassment for, for all that stuff in the past, or we can actually use it for God's redemptive purposes. And I love the fact that, that Paul just, it says immediately he started telling people about Jesus. He didn't wait. He didn't kind of think, oh, you know, well, maybe in a few years' time or like when I've been to Bible college or whenever. And so often in our lives, we stop. We don't step forward. We don't get involved because we think we need some kind of training. We think we need something else. But there will always be one of those things that you think you need that will stop you from doing the thing that God wants you to do right now. And God is doing a lot in our midst. He's doing a lot in our church. He's doing a lot in our church movement. He's doing a lot in our nation. And what we need is people who are willing to allow God to work his purposes in whatever ways God wants to do that, that we're willing to step out to have faith, to, to take risks, and to share our story as well. You know, one of the, the problems that Paul actually had is that everybody knew his story anyway. You know, everybody knew that's so, and that was a problem for him because when he went places, were like, are you not the guy that's persecuting us? It's like, no, that, that's not me anymore. That person's dead. You know, that person did do those things, but this person here is here to tell you about Jesus. Um, and so... We might not be the Saul Paul, the kind of the public figure, the person who goes around and is, is famous, and we're talking about him right now. But some of you might be an Ananias. An Ananias is just as important in this story because without Ananias, we wouldn't have Paul. 
because Ananias is sitting there and he has a vision and God speaks to him and says, you know that guy, the one that's like going around persecuting and killing everybody, in fact, the one you're hiding from right now, well, I want you to go down, I want you to go down Straight Street and you go to that house of Judas and he'll be there and he'll know you're coming and I want you to do this, this and this. And Ananias is like, that guy? But he goes and he's faithful and he gets to be the guy that prays for Paul, that sees something like scales fall from his eyes. And then to see the change and transformation in Paul's life. But we never really hear of him ever again. He spent the rest of his life being faithful, responding to God, doing what God was calling him to do. And we don't know what that looked like, but it doesn't really matter. And so what is it that God is calling you to be faithful with? How is it that God has spoken to you? And what does it look like for you to take that step? I want you to go down that street and knock that door, do this and do that. You know, Ananias didn't have a vision where God mapped out the whole the rest of his life. He was just told to do a couple of things and to be faithful in them. And um, I was thinking just the other day about how Saul persecuted people. He persecuted those Christians. And very often we treat other people badly because we dehumanize them and we push them away from us and we think about them as just those people. And I, and I was wondering, you know, if, if somebody in Saul's family had turned to Christianity, would he have been as quick to breathe murderous threats, to speak ill of them, to think, well, they just deserve death? And, you know, if Ananias had thought, oh, that's just that person, that figure, Saul, you know, the, the murderer, the persecutor, I'm not going to go and talk to him. But when, when we encounter Jesus, when we get his heart, when he fills us with love and compassion, it does something about the way that we view other people. That it's not so easy just to push other people to the side, to walk over them, to um, ignore them all of the time. And uh, the classic example of this is um, for any of you that, that's maybe ever been rude to somebody else when you've been driving your car, okay? Because none of us have ever done that, you know? But you know sometimes when you're about to slam your horn on your car or you're about to make a rude gesture towards somebody who's driving badly and you suddenly realize that you know them, yeah? You're like, you're about to slam the horn, you're like, Toot, toot. Hi. Because you've gone from that state of dehumanizing that thing, that person over there, to actually, I know them. I know them. I have a connection with that person. And I think this is one of the keys for how we step into the fullness of what God is calling us to do, is that we see the God image in another, in other people. And that's what we respond to. That's who we respond to. Because Saul was this, this murderer. But when the encounter with Jesus, as Debbie said, you know, Paul, Paul hears the voice of Jesus saying, you know, why do you persecute me? And depending on, on our view of God, we'll, we'll think, as Debbie was saying, like, how did that come across? Was, was it like the voice of anger? From God, was it the voice of disappointment? 
or was it the voice of grace, of love, of mercy, of compassion? Like God is saying to his son, Saul, like there's so much in you, Saul. You, you know, you've got so much passion and you're using it in the wrong way. Why do you persecute me? Can we not have a relationship together? I died on the cross for you, Saul. Why do you persecute me? I want you to have a relationship with me. I'm going to gonna take you out of the darkness. I'm going to bring somebody that's going to pray for you. And, and your life's going to be changed and transformed. And so if we can kind of take that on board a bit, if we can see with the eyes of Jesus, if we can see other people as God sees them, I think that will really change and transform how we love each other in church. You know, one of the things that, that you suffer from being a church leader is, is that when people want to be nasty or, or rude towards you or inconsiderate towards you, they think of you as a pastor. They dehumanize. I, I'm no longer Chris. I'm that pastor or that person. They give me a title and therefore they, they think it's okay. They treat me badly because I'm a leader, but I'm not. My name's Chris. I'm married to Debbie. I've got three children. I'm a person. And in so many different ways, we dehumanize. And in our society and in our culture, people treat other people badly and do horrible things to each other. But when we see that person as they are, when we understand who God has made them to be, we'll start to treat them a bit differently. And so what that looks like in the church is that we look at each other and we build each other up and we encourage and support each other and we call destiny and identity out of each other. That's one of the great gifts that we have through the prophetic is that we call out the God-given image and we encourage people. We train and equip people in this church, not just so they can be trained and equipped, but so that they can be the person that God has called them to be. And then we, as the church, we go out, we connect with the other people who have names and identities and histories and families. And we tell them about their Heavenly Father who loves them and wants relationship with them, who's desperate for them, who has sent us to tell them that God loves them. You know, we want to see revival. We want to see our nation changed and transformed. But it starts with us having a revelation of God's love and knowing fully who we are. And that love that we experience from God gives us enough love to see the God image in another, in other people, and to call that out, and to call them into their destiny, and call them home to their Heavenly Father, and call them in to their family. But it all starts from that place uh, of encounter. So the band are going to come up. We're just going to worship. We're going to do one song. Um, and what I would just love for you to, to do is to allow God to speak into your life. And so maybe like Paul, you have difficult experiences in the past. But God wants to bring complete restoration to you. Maybe like Paul, God is calling you to go out and to carry his good news and to share his love with other people. But we do that from a revelation of who God is and how much he loves us. And then we start to see other people differently and respond to them differently. But just in this song, allow God to speak to, to you about what he's been stirring your heart with this morning. So let's stand.